In your Bibles, if you would turn to Exodus chapter 7, uh, if you do not have a Bible, there's one probably in one of the seats near you, in front of you. Uh, Exodus 7 is found on page 49. Uh, we are going to cover in the sermon, uh, starting in Exodus chapter 7, verse 8, all the way through the end of chapter 11. Don't worry, I'm not going to read all of that. Uh, why would I not read all of that? Um, our book of church order, chapter 50, says that it's up to my discretion how much we read publicly. But regarding time, I have to make sure that neither reading, singing, praying, preaching, or anything else is disproportionate to the whole. So rather than spend so much time reading all of the plagues, I'm going to read... Um, starting in verse 8 of chapter 7 through verse 13. I'm going to skip the next eight plagues and summarize them in the sermon, but I'm going to actually highlight in the sermon the ninth plague. So I will pick up the reading in chapter 10, starting in verse 21, and go through the end of chapter 11. So with that, Introduction, let us pay attention to God's word. Uh, Exodus chapter 7, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Uh, skipping over chapter 10, picking up on verse 21, the ninth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me, take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Chapter 11, verse 1, the final plague, threatened. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague 
More, one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask. Every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. The grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of our God will stand forever. We saw last week that God's people need reassurance in times of suffering. He reminded his people of who he is. He confirmed his leadership of Moses and Aaron. And he got specific in the beginning of chapter 7 about what he will do to redeem his people from Egypt, who, as we will remember, have had their suffering greatly increased, seemingly because of God and what God told Moses and Aaron to say to Pharaoh. But now we get to the judgments of the famous plagues. There's three things that we're going to learn in God's judgment throughout these chapters. In God's judgment, He shows that He is the Lord of creation. In God's judgment, He proves that He punishes sin. And in God's judgment, He brings all people to acknowledge Him as Lord. Firstly, in God's judgment, He shows He is Lord of creation. So the major means of His judgment against Pharaoh and against all of the people of Egypt is what some people have called the undoing of the creation order through the very creation. God is going to judge Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Uh, This is going to show that he, rather than Pharaoh or Egypt's gods, are the true God. He is the true God, period. But also that he reigns over all the creation as creator. There are, are several evidences of this throughout Uh, the passage that I read in chapter 7, but also throughout all of the plagues. Um, In the Hebrew, uh, the word Nahash is used in chapter 4, the first three verses, for a serpent 
that Moses' staff is turned into. That Hebrew word would be like a garden snake, a king snake, a rattlesnake, a cobra snake. Something that would be very familiar uh, throughout the Nile River Delta. Something that would come in and out of houses typically, as some of us unfortunately even experience today. That would not be uncommon. In chapter 7, verse 9, the word Nahash is not used. The word Tannin is used, which is the word used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 21, for God creating the great sea creatures of the sea. This is something that has appeared on the floor that does not belong on land, that does not commonly come into households, that is a beast of the ocean. And it is the first attempt at God trying to reach Pharaoh's ridiculous rebellion to say, I'm the Lord of creation. I created everything. I put them in their proper place. But in my judgment, I can disorder everything if you would only listen. What other evidences does God try to prove to Pharaoh? The first plague has life-giving water turned into deadly blood. Blood is where life comes from. They're supposed to handle the blood very particularly as priests in the book of Leviticus. Blood's very uh, precious. It's special. The life is in the blood, Leviticus tells us. But blood is now causing death. Water is supposed to bring life and Life springs up from the Nile River. No longer. That's been undone in the first plague. The second plague has amphibious frogs that need to stay near the river that come in and out of the water. They're now running all over the land, all over the desert, where they're not uh, normally found. The third plague has the dust of the earth not producing mankind, as in the book of Genesis. Not yielding crops for life. It yields gnats. I'll highlight the fourth plague later. Uh, The fifth plague has the life and the life-giving purpose of the livestock reversed with their breath of life taken away. The sixth plague is not so much a creation reversal as a show of force against the Egyptian magicians. Uh, I, I mentioned them There in chapter 7, they're mentioned in several of the next plagues as replicating or seemingly replicating the miracles that God is allowing Moses and Aaron to do. What happens with the boils? They can't heal themselves. And they're not heard from again. Because they're not God. Pharaoh is not God. The Egyptian gods are not real. They've been disproven. They've been displaced. And we've not even gotten through the end of the plagues yet. They had mimicked the staff to the serpent, the blood, the frogs, and they can't keep up. In the seventh and eighth plagues, the hail and locusts not only kill animals and humans as they would commonly do, but radically every green thing. And the most profound undoing of creation is a full three days of darkness. 
the undoing of Genesis 1-3. Let there be light. God turned the lights on. Only God can turn the lights off. Not the magicians. Not the sorcerers. Not Ra, the Egyptian sun god. No one except Yahweh. Of course, the threat of the tenth plague is what I also read in chapter 11, which is something that we will focus on in the actual Exodus event and the Passover next week. But the killing of the firstborn children of Egypt, the undoing of creation of a nation, where, where the womb would bring forth life, where there would be a future, a future life and reproduction is ended. The, the firstborn would, would inherit most things from the parents and the ancient world ended, reversed, because God is the Lord of creation. He's the true God, not Pharaoh, not the Egyptian government, not any government before this Pharaoh, not any government since this Pharaoh. You're not God. I'm not God. Only Yahweh is Lord of all creation, in control of all things, and does everything to accomplish and establish His own perfect will. But the trouble is like Pharaoh. We don't want to listen to that because we want to be our own God. Which leads us to the second point. In God's judgment, He proves that He punishes sin. Several times we see in these chapters uh, that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. I counted 14 times in our uh, section uh, of chapters that I covered loosely this morning in the reading. That's a lot. That means it's an emphasis. God is simply uh, giving him over to his desires, as he does certain people. According to Romans chapter 1, everyone is in rebellion against God by birth, by natural generation. Everybody wants to be their own God. Everybody suppresses the truth. Everybody knows that there is a God, and it's the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible. But we want to have hard hearts. Each time this Pharaoh disobeys, he goes further and further away from the truth. As we discussed uh, this passage last night as a family, my wife said it's like clay. You should be able to mend and mold clay. It should be amenable to change and, and listen. But as the sun hits the clay over time, Harder, 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 like concrete, where it just gets shattered. Useless. Like Pharaoh's heart. Over these sequences of plagues, Pharaoh hardens his heart more. Pharaoh will not listen. The aspect of the verb hardened in most of these passages is just stating the situation that it's in, which is in rebellion. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Uh, Chapter 7, verses 13, 14, uh, 22, 23. Chapter 8, uh, 19, 32. Chapter 9, 7, 12, 34, 35. Then, as 
Yahweh promised. In chapters 10 and 14, he hardens Pharaoh's heart. He just gives him over to his sin and his rebellion, which is a devastating sadness in many ways. The aspect of the Hebrew verb changes in chapters 10 and 14 to show causation, which, which tells us that previously this is something where his heart was just in a state of rebellion. He enjoyed it. He loved it. He hated God. He always had. He was given every opportunity through all of these miraculous signs and miracles to say, this has to be God. Moses and Aaron have to be showing me who the real God is. Even my magicians cannot keep up. He won't listen. He won't listen. He won't listen. Even in the ninth plague after the darkness, he says, okay, I'll let you go. Wait a minute, you want to take the cows too? Uh Uh-uh. How ridiculous is our sin. How stubborn and stiff-necked can we sometimes be? This raises several questions um, pastorally, though, about God's judgment. Some non-Christians complain to us about being called a sinner, being told the reality of hell. We'll complain that God is mean and capricious. However, as I prayed earlier, we have to have a God of justice who punishes sin. We're all sinners. In those moments when we don't want a God of justice, it's probably because we want to get away with something. But the moment we become a victim, where's the, ju- where's the judgment? Where's the justice? But this passage is shouting from the rooftops. Sin is real. Rebellion is real. God punishes our sinful rebellion. If you simply watched five minutes of the Memphis news in the last 10 days, you would know that we need a God of justice. You would know that we're the only ones who have an answer for the devastation that angers us so with the unrighteousness and the injustice that we see daily in the news, but maybe often even in our own lives. But more specifically, rather than just injustice against creation, more specifically, God's people like the Israelites will face persecution, do so around the world every day. I was um, looking at a, a Facebook post in an elder group, and there was a maybe nearly retired teaching elder who'd lived in Asia a lot of his ministry and was ordained in the Philadelphia, Philadelphia Presbytery 30 years ago. And he was asking for prayer. Uh, because there was a Chinese pastor uh, who was also ordained in the Philadelphia Presbytery of our denomination several years ago, who was trying to get his Chinese church out of China into Korea because they're being hunted. And they can't stay in Korea. 
So they're trying to get into Thailand. And he was asking for prayer because he's trying to be a pastor living in Europe, helping this Chinese pastor living in Asia, being a travel agent and being all kinds of things. They don't even know if they're going to be safe in Bangkok because the CCP, they think, is just going to find them eventually. It happens daily throughout the world. The church needs judgment, needs to see justice. We can think in many ways in our own context. Some have and some definitely will face isolation, lost wages, uh, lost employment, simply for stating biblical views on race, sexuality, abortion, Name the issue. It's, it's coming. Where do we go? God punishes sin and brings judgment. Lord willing, sometimes we see evidences of that in this life. But we may not perfectly. We looked at Revelation 11, men's Bible study on Wednesday recalls the appearing of two witnesses who are martyred. One is probably a reference to the church universal. Then when the seventh trumpet is blown, there is worship that occurs. Revelation eleven eighteen says, The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged. Which reminded me of Psalm 2. The nations rage in vain against the Lord's anointed, and He will break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's an imprecatory psalm asking for God's judgment. That's in the Bible. Because sin is real. It needs to be punished. We've discussed um, individually as elders um, the Reformed and Presbyterian and even Old Testament tradition of singing psalms in the worship service, which would mean sometimes we would actually sing imprecatory psalms in worship services. Psalm 9.9 reminds us, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Deuteronomy 26 reflects that the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us. The Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. The domestic abuse and sexual assault study committee report of the PCA, which we will discuss tomorrow night, seems to equate the word oppression with abuse. He hears the cries. We pray for justice. And in church courts, Lord willing, we will enact justice. Again, as I prayed, may it be the case that that victims of all kinds of oppression, of all kinds of abuse, and the study report lists all kinds, may may those people find a, a voice and a haven of healing, which sometimes takes years in the care of Women in this church, in the care of the session of this church, in the care of our presbytery, where needed, where we would start to see justice, where we would enact justice, where we would report to authorities, where we would be a voice for justice. Why? 
Not because it's socially cool, but because it's biblically right and called for in the Bible. God punishes sin. We should say praise be to God for that. However, in the end, in God's judgment, He brings all people to acknowledge Him as Lord. All people. I mentioned this last week from chapter 7, verse 5, that through the plagues, Egypt will know that God is Lord. But now, they will know Him as Lord and Judge. Uh, This is what, in a sense, we just highlighted, uh, speaking about sin, but I think it's somewhat personal now, because uh, Pharaoh will end up saying, right, hey, Moses, I don't care about you. I don't know your God. Well, now he does. And that's a theme uh, throughout these chapters. There's... uh, untold number of times where the Egyptians throughout these plagues will know. They will know that I am Lord. They will know that I am God. They will know. They will know. Nine times, I think it is, the Egyptians will know that he is judge. Uh, The particular section of uh, chapter 11, where the final plague is threatened, shows us there's a fulfillment of a promise coming from Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, verse 14. This is not coming out of the blue. God even said, I'm going to punish them in this way. We've already mentioned all of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We remember the events of Exodus 1 through 5, that these people are enslaved. They have no human rights. It's gotten even worse since Moses and Aaron have tried to minister in God's name. They won't listen. The Egyptians are punished because God is judge. The Israelites were enslaved. Pharaoh said in 5.2 in response to Moses, I don't know the Lord. Now he does. There's judgment coming. Through this judgment, all Egypt, all of Pharaoh's house, will know that there is a judge coming who punishes sin. But, all this talk of judgment, you could also know him not simply as judge, but as a savior. A savior in the midst of the judgment. Where on earth do we see that in these passages? Where is there a savior or anybody being saved in these passages? If we go back to the fourth plague of the flies, uh, there's the first of several explicit mentions of the sparing of the Israelites and separating them from the Egyptians, even in the reading of the ninth plague with the darkness, who's not in the dark? Israelites. The flies don't go to Goshen, which is where the Israelites were living. They are God's people. They have been spared all of these plagues. As we see next week, what happens in the Passover? The angel of death passes over them. They're spared. They know God as a Savior. They're being saved. They're being passed over. There is an intentional separation between goats and sheep, between Israelites and Egyptians. The idea here is picked up 
picked up upon in some commentaries that uh, throughout biblical history, there's great acts of uh, judgment that are kind of butted up against great acts of redemption. You see that in Noah's day and in Abraham's day. We see it here. We see in Isaiah chapters 40 and and 55, where they're, they're going to Babylon to be punished for their sin and enslaved. But then you have all these servant songs and promises of redemption and renewal. You have it in the whole book of Revelation as well. There was a day when redemption and judgment met, though. If we think about, how do I know Him as Savior rather than judge? How can I have hope amidst the abuse and the oppression and the senseless violence that I see endlessly, that it will end one day? How do I have hope for my own soul that is sometimes hardened against the Lord? If you think about the devastation of the ninth plague in chapter 10, how many days was it dark? It was three days. How many hours was it dark when Jesus died? Three hours. Why? The angel of death passed over you when Jesus died on the cross. The darkness that befell the city of Jerusalem on the day of the crucifixion, those three hours mimic the three days in Egypt, and they remind us that we've been spared rebellious sinners who had hard hearts like us, had our hearts melted through repentance and forgiveness because someone else took the judgment. Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23. Three hours of darkness when the curtain was torn in two and we gained access into the throne room of grace. We were forgiven of our sins that our hearts would no longer become hardened in our falling into temptation, in our living in sin, in our desire only for ourselves, but also in hope, brothers and sisters. There's a day of judgment coming again, that if you don't know the Lord, you will be judged worse than the Egyptians eternally. If you know the Lord Jesus, and you know that those three hours or hours that you should have faced, but He faced in your place. You can face today and tomorrow with hope because judgment and justice are coming even if we don't see it perfectly today. Praise be to the Lord for that. Praise be to the Lord that we know Him, that we can look forward to the day that the Apostle Paul spoke of in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Someday every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and will confess what Moses and Aaron were trying to get Moses to confess, to get Pharaoh to confess. 
Yahweh is the true God, Lord and creator of all, punisher of sin, and yet the one who sent his only son to die for us. Indeed, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we ask for your help. In a day when justice seems far off, in a day when we walk daily with the consequences of our own sin, the consequences of those who have sinned against us in oppression, in violence, loss of life, when it seems the church is persecuted more and more. God, we confess that you are the ruler yet. This is your world and you sent your son to die for it. And we bow the knee now in our hearts, knowing that someday all people will. Praise be to you, Father. Amen.